So Money episode 1046, Ask Farnoosh, with special co-host Georgia Lee Hussey of Modernist Financial. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. May 22nd. How's everybody doing? We are New Jersey, enjoying the neighborhood, the grass, the greens, the sun, no longer vertical living, no longer worried about taking elevators and all that. Reading more and more about how so many people, not just in the New York area, but Los Angeles area and Chicago area and Boston area, dense cities, highly populated cities, those residents looking for solace out in the tri-state area, suburb, suburban area, whether that's going to be a long lasting trend, we shall see. But at least for this summer, a lot of people getting out of the cities. And so you, you know how I feel about that. This was an interesting week for the podcast. We had a guest on the show Monday, if you didn't catch it, Sarah Nainan, who is just an absolute renegade, somebody who survived um, the death of a spouse, left with children to take care of, had to really reinvent her life. Just, I mean, at that point, you just put on your shield, you put on your, your armor and you go out there and you fight. And she fought the good fight. And now she's on the other side of things, helping people all also work through things like, you know, grief, which she found was probably the hardest part of all of it, you know, dealing with life while you're dealing with loss. And um, I think that was a good interview, especially given the times, you know, a lot of us are experiencing grief, whether that's financial grief, actual grief, because you've lost a loved one in this pandemic, or we're, we're grieving the loss of a job or grieving the loss of not being able to see our loved ones, um, even if though they are healthy, but we are distant and that is creating a lot of, uh, sadness. And I wanted to bring on, uh, Sarah to kind of give us some hope and strategy for navigating what is a very taboo topic. So check out Sarah on Monday. Speaking of taboo topics, it's Ask Farnoosh Friday. And you know what I encourage everyone to do on this particular episode is just let it loose. Talk about what's on your money mind. Before we get to the mailbag, as always, want to go to the iTunes section and pick a reviewer of the week. And this week, we're going to say thanks to Emily L1994, who left a review on May 14th. It says this is inspiration for everyone of any age. And she says that uh, her favorite episode was actually the one with Scott Galloway from, oh gosh, earlier this month. He was a he was a real zinger of a guest, and many of you wrote in to say how much you enjoyed it. He dropped a bunch of f bombs too, but he's uh, the notorious business professor at the Stern School of Business at NYU. He's got multiple podcasts. He sits on a number of boards. He started companies. He likes to predict things, and he we so we talked about the future of you know college and millennials. And so um, I guess Emily loved that episode so much it prompted her to write a five-star review. Um, And of course, she says she's been listening for a while and really appreciates the show. So Emily, thank you so much. And please be in touch by emailing me, farnushedsomoneypodcast.com. Let me know you left the review. You can get me on Instagram as well. Direct message me there. And I will be in touch with a link so that we can make a time to connect. Brought back my friend, 
Georgia Lee Hussey. She's a friend of the show. I can say that officially because she's been on multiple times and she's also a friend, friend, but definitely a friend of the show. We we love her advice. We love her her perspectives. You know, it's it's nice to hear from somebody who, yes, can talk about money and the financials, but also in the context of living your best life, a gratifying life, a life where you feel like you're not just helping yourself, but others. Georgia Lee Hussey, my friend, welcome back to So Money. Oh, thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here and get to chat about these great questions. Yeah, we got a lot of a lot of voicemails too this week. We'll have excited to unleash those. Now, Georgia, according to my Skype, uh, we we last spoke March 25th and I, I was just saying before we went uh, to record that a lot of time's gone by, but I feel like not much has changed. How is it going for you out in Portland since we last spoke? Yeah, we uh, we are holding strong here in Portland. Uh, all of our team has been working from home now for a little over two months. Um, I feel like my partner would really like me to go back to the office, though I don't think he's going to get that benefit anytime soon. Um <laughs> So, yeah, I think that grief piece, though, is really important. The sort of the longing for hugs, the desire to what I think of as sort of near strangers to talk to my baristas and see how they're doing. And and just this um, the interstitial social life that we have that are maybe not don't seem big and dramatic, but uh, really help sort of give us a context, a place that we, that we matter. And, and I think that's for me is one of the hardest things right now. Yeah. It's really starting to, um, become more and more apparent just how much we miss socializing. (laughs) And I miss that for my kids, especially. I wonder, I'm so grateful they have each other, but I really, Mm. my heart goes out to a lot of the single kids, uh, single child, only child kids out there that may not have other little kids to, talk to and wrestle with. And Hmm. it's, it's hard, but we will get our act together soon on all this stuff. And we know more, of course, about what's happening financially in the world, right? Last time you were on, we didn't have, well, April hadn't happened yet. (laughs) And April will go down as, you know, definitely the month that kicked off the recession and maybe depression, over 20 million jobs lost. And that, uh, by some estimates, undoes all the job gains since uh, the Great Recession back in two thousand and eight nine. So now we know we can we can size up the pain a little bit better now. And I'm maybe just a question here too about how are your clients doing? If they were doing okay in March, how are they doing now? Because I feel like every day is a things change. People had jobs three weeks ago, don't have them now, or had their hours mm-hmm. cut back. Is Mm-hmm. Job loss a real big threat from where you're standing. Yeah, you know, we're. Um, I would say from our client perspective, that's not as much of a concern because we work primarily with high net worth folks, so they have a lot of financial buffer. Um, I will say the clients that we have that are own closely held businesses, this has been um, a time of sort of the opportunity to dig in to sort of core practices like cash flow projections and um, really the maintenance of, of the business to, to make sure that they know the the amount of runway they have available to them. So, you know, the PPP happened in that time period and it's been interesting. A lot of conversations because we are really values focused and a lot of our, most of our clients have progressive politics, they're trying to understand their ethical relationship and moral relationship with that money. And so 
that's been a lot of our conversations. Um, I would say people just trying to decide, do they really need it? If they do, do they want to take it for forgiveness? If they don't, are they just treating it as a short-term loan to be able to create some buffer? Um, so it's, it's been a lot of conversations and I don't have an answer for anybody on what that answer is for them, but I, uh, I'm enjoying having the honor of being able to sort of be a vessel for that conversation. Um, because, I've been sort of thinking a lot about sort of you need to take what you need and leave the rest right now. Um, but I think it's a very human desire to sort of take everything we can. Um, and so there's been a lot of counsel both internally and the firm um, with clients and in the community around a sense of generosity, being honest about what you need and asking for that support. But I also then just moving, you know, letting, letting those resources move on to other folks who might need it more. So I would say the conversations with clients are very different than the conversations with my, um, entrepreneurial friends who, especially women and folks of color who generally are not banked, um, are capitalized. They didn't get the PPP. And, um, we're hoping the second round that, you know, B Corp style banks and banks that actually do have a internal mandate to support folks who are generally left behind by the financial institutions. My hope is that, um, I'm hearing that they're really stepping in to try and help support, um, the, the needs of those businesses. So it's a lot of what we're thinking about. And and are you thinking about also how the personal finance advice narrative may shift post pandemic? And what I mean by that is there are a lot of pieces of advice that we've been following over the years, these like tried and true pillars of personal finance, like pay down your credit card debt, invest in your retirement, spend less than you earn, et cetera, et cetera, pay yourself first. And I don't think anyone's regretting having done all those things, but I wonder if now we have to put all of that advice in a much different context, which is that, yes, Mm. you can do a lot individually to control your financial independence to some extent, but there's also the system, right? There's politics, Mm. there's corporations. We know all of this, but now if we didn't think this was, if it was the case before, we definitely know now that it takes everybody and every institution, every system to help um, Mm. the the average person to be Mm. not just, not to be wealthy, even just to be, you know, financially solvent. And so I hope that one day after, or even starting as soon as today, this, this podcast, that we really start to understand that there's so much more that is not in our control and we should fight for those changes, right? We Mm. need to fight even Mm. more for those changes. I mean, Mm. we've always talked about equal pay, but like there's, the list is long, for all of right. the you know systemic changes that need to take place. And I wonder, like that might be an opportunity for your wealthier clients, right? To put more effort towards maybe policy change. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would say that um, there's some interesting, it's interesting to see how we give at different phases of our lives. And I sort of think we're, um, oftentimes people will start with direct aid. They want to do food bank. They want to do um, direct service, right? And then I think as we, get into the weeds a little bit more and see the scale of the systemic issues, it's, it's common for, for the desire to give to move more towards policy. I know that's personally been my experience is that I'm, I am really focused on giving to journalism personally, to journalism, to, um, organizations that to the Southern poverty law center, to the equal justice initiative, to folks who are working 
in the system and working on changing that system. And so, um, I definitely, we spend a lot of time talking with, with our clients about that, especially with the equity lens, because everything, all the negative financial impacts that we see disproportionately impact, um, communities of color, especially, um, women of color and, and, um, the Latinx community. We're seeing that here, um, in this moment, we're seeing the impact on, uh, first nations. It's really, um, what felt like a, to me felt like a a gut sense of what was going on and little pieces of information. Now it's sort of all laid bare. Um, and I think this is, as you say, it's an opportunity for us to step forward and say, you know, I have enough, I am happy to have a higher tax rate. Um, I am happy to help pay for other people's healthcare because if they're not well, I'm going to pay for it eventually. Can we just have a, a more efficient process? Right. Um, cause you know, my clients who are 60, who are retired pay $2,000 a month in healthcare premiums. That's insane. That's just premium you know, and that's because the system isn't, isn't efficient. So, um, to me, there's a certain, uh, there's a, a financial pragmatism to, um, rethinking these systems because they're just, they're simply not sustainable, um, moving forward. I like how you framed it as pragmatism, not political, right? This is just, it, it, there is just, you're we're not optimizing. Um, there's a lot of, uh, mismanagement. Let's move over to the mailbag. And this week, I'm excited to share that we have some audio drops. People are using the leave a voicemail tool on the website. And that's fun because I just love to hear from people. Gives me just, you know, more to love. Just I love your words. Then I get to love your voice also. Um, So here, let's let's kick this off with Bridget. She's left a a voicemail concerning whether or not and I get this question quite frequently these days, which is a good thing, I guess, but whether or not she should be asking for a raise. So that tells us that one, she has a job, which is great. And two, she's kicking butt at work, feeling confident to perhaps ask for more. But let's let's uh, have her explain. Hey, Farnoosh, this is Bridget. I love your show. I've learned so much from you, but I need your help. Should I ask for a pay increase during the COVID-19? I am a director of admissions and marketing at a private school. It is a nonprofit school. And at this point, I've been the director of admissions and marketing for a year. I make 50K. When I started at the campus, they were still doing everything via paper. Nothing was electronic. The website had to be completely redone. And so I did all of that. During my time, I have to date as of May of 2020, have enrolled and actually starting 11 students on an average tuition of about 18K. Um, I have about another 17 in the pipeline that I'm working with as far as potential parents. I've made some huge strides. I felt I definitely needed a pay increase before COVID-19. I am not getting paid what I should be being paid uh, with my level of experience, um, education, but mainly experience. I have over 10 years of experience in admissions and being a director of admissions. So I need your help. Do I ask for the 15K? I look forward to hearing back from you. Thank you, Bridget, for your question. And congrats on all the um, value that you're bringing to your school. Of course, right now, it's such a 
challenging time for so many institutions, so many colleges, and to have you on board, um, that's a real gift to your staff and to your your university. So she does explain, Georgia, that it's a not-for-profit. And of course, given what's happening in the world, she just, you know, I think it's super relatable. She's not sure if this, if it's appropriate to ask for a raise mm. now. I kind of can see both sides of this, you know, on the one hand, yes, I can sense, well, maybe it's a not-for-profit. And having talked to uh, my friend Lydia, who raises money for -for not-for-profits, she's like, this Mm. is not the year to thrive. You are, as a not-profit, this is just your year to survive. And so Mm. even though Bridget has really brought in money for her team here through enrollments, is it really putting them in the black? It might just mm. be helping them like keep head above water, which wouldn't leave mm-hmm. a lot of money left for the raise. I think maybe she should try to do some more digging and just really have a, a better sense of the health, the financial health of her of her department. What do you think? You know, as a boss, I really love it when my vendors or my employees bring me a compelling business reason to help me move along the path towards their goals um, and help me help develop the business rationale and help me figure out how I'm going to pay for whatever it is that they want. So really what I'm saying is, yes, she, Bridget should absolutely be aware of the constraints on the business model she's operating within. And I think it's also important to point out that every business across every industry is trying to figure out how to survive right now. Um, but a lot of the business owners I'm talking with and, and leaders are saying, okay, if I can't give you a raise, but I value you, what can I give you that maybe doesn't have a direct hit to my budget, but can help um, right size things for where you think you, where you should be. So if she wanted some extra time off or she needed a different benefit or um, there is a way that she can, can develop a path forward in her own career that if I were her boss, I could say, okay, I'll make this introduction to somebody who's, who could be meaningful for your career. And maybe you can take Friday afternoons off or, you know, come up with a, with a strategy that I can get behind that doesn't make me do all the work because whoever your boss is, is super stressed out right now mm-hmm. and, um, helping get on their side makes it easier, like any situation, (laughs) makes it easy for them to say yes, or yes. And, um, I think the other option that might be interesting is to design some triggers for increasing income. So if you meet this stretch goal, then that would produce this much revenue, which maybe you could get a small percentage Ah. of or a piece of, because if, when people come to me and say, I see what your goals are and I want to, um, I want to help you meet those goals and here's how I can see the finances working for that. It just, it, a, it makes it harder for me to say no, but also makes me, it makes me feel like I have a partner in these decisions as opposed to somebody who's sort of like do it or don't. Um, yes. And, and Bridget has the advantage of actually being able to see the numeric value of mm. what she is doing for her team. She said that she's brought on um, all these new students and she has even more in the pipeline. I love that idea, Georgia, of going to her manager and saying, I've got another 20 students that I am working hard on to, to enroll them for summer and fall. If I get 80% enrolled, what about a bonus? Because mm-hmm. I mean, then that is immediately tied to the income that she's bringing in. There's no question of the value that she's adding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's, it, it's so important for us to be um, active uh, managers of our human capital, whether you own a business or whether you work in a business or for a nonprofit, um, 
keeping note of the things you accomplished for your institution um, is really a helpful way to build your case over time. And um, it, so that can also be an important thing for her to keep lists of what she's doing and accomplishing. I think of a friend of mine whose um, father was one of the first African-American executives at one of the utilities in the South. And because of um, institutional and human bias, he knew he was going to have a very hard time progressing. He went very far in his career and he kept a sheet and notes of all the things he accomplished so nobody could argue with him about giving him a raise. So I think that is, is uh, to me, I've always thought about that as being so wise to to sort of keep your own balance sheet in your career. Um, it makes it easier to move forward. Uh, yes, love that. Love that. Well, Bridget, I think we gave you some strategy here. Thanks to our friend Georgia. Just maybe I think going in with the mindset of I have all these other goals I want to achieve on bringing these students. That's X revenue. If I do that, how about bonus or whatever you feel is appropriate? Sticking with the career theme, we have a question from Regina. In short, uh, she's wondering, how can I move up in my career right now? I love all my ambitious listeners. I love it. I love it. I love it. She says, I'm making more money than I ever thought I would, but I am finding that I absolutely hate my job. It's a huge bummer, she says. It's mostly the environment, not so much the role. And so first question, I really want to find a job where I can make a difference for other women, make my work have meaning. Do you have any companies that you recommend where the mission is to help women one way or the other? And then secondly, she wants to figure a way out of this job during this uncertain time. So she wants to move quickly. And then finally, she wants to do this without taking a huge pay cut. Oh, any advice? I'm trying yeah. to think of, I mean, there's so many great organizations with the mission to support women. Um, a lot of them are not profit, nonprofits. I mean, I'm thinking off the top of my head, Dress for Success is one. Mm. The core mission is to help women globally find meaningful work. So mm. talk about Meta, right? Working for an organization <laughs> that is, you know, that she's doing, practicing what she preaches. I, I don't have an exhaustive list, Regina. Maybe I should have prepared more for this question, but how to do this in a way where she doesn't lose financial momentum. And I think mm. it goes back to what you said, Georgia, about really being aware of all the things that you're, all the value that you're bringing, that balance sheet, that professional balance sheet. Have you started to make that mm. list, Regina, of all your accomplishments? Yeah, I would say I see a few options. I first, as always, dig into your values. And I think I'm really a big fan of the heroes practices of really identifying the people you admire around you and then looking at them and seeing what can you learn from their path. Um, listen and to their interviews, read some interviews with them and get ideas about how they got to a place where they're working on the behalf of an organization or a group of folks that they believe in. Um, I think that's one thing that can be really inspirational and give you some ideas. Um, in the side of women owned businesses, there are a lot of options at Oregon. Oddly, we have this amazing women's entrepreneurship community here. It's really inspiring and it seems to, um, orient itself around, organizations like B Corps, there's a cool thing called Zebras Unite, which is sort of like B Corps, but for multi, almost like multi-generational evergreen businesses. Um, there's also some great business accelerators out there. There's one called in Portland here called, um, Accelerate Fund. It's X Accelerate. Um, 
like our chromosomes. Um, there's also some progressive chambers of commerce that might be an interesting place to find organizations with this intent, because uh, oftentimes it doesn't necessarily have to be a nonprofit. It could be a, a business uh, organization. Uh, and then there's also the certified women-owned business um designation, which is the Women's Business Enterprise, or WBE. Um, it's operated through SCORE, uh, sorry, the SBA, much like the PP, much like a lot of the loans we're hearing about. So that's another place to take a look uh, where you might find some organizations. So I think it's going to be a little bit of a database project of finding uh, where, where these different uh, types of uh, personality traits of businesses might come together. Um, also, Time's Up has, has spawned a bunch of different projects and funds. So that might be an interesting place to look. That's a great, great, great list. Wow. Yeah. I mean, perhaps a great way to invest your time right now, Regina, is building that network out and making that heroes mm-hmm. list. And I was just having a phone call today with a So Money listener who won a free 15-minute money session with me. And she's thinking of joining a mastermind. It's an investment, but for her, she wants to get more into real estate investing and things like that. So finding your tribe, finding your people. And then within that organization, within that small group, getting all your questions answered about salary and negotiating and job opportunities. I think that could be uh, really exciting. All right, Georgia, our next question is from Natalie. What's the most affordable way to get a prenup? She says that a lawyer quoted her $3,000 for her prenup and her fiance would pay $1,000. I'm a big advocate for prenups. And if you're going to get one, each of you should have your own lawyer. So that's the first thing I want to point out. I don't know so much about whether this is too expensive or not. It doesn't seem unreasonable to me, but definitely each of you should have your own attorneys. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, legal adv- advice in my experience is generally reasonably priced. So, um, but it's not cheap, right? It's something we don't want to pay for really, but it's the place where in my mind, don't, don't, don't not pay for good legal advice because you may regret it later in terms of how thorough the, the documents are. Um, so, but you might be well, um, served by getting some competitive quotes. I know that, um, in Portland here, we have several, uh, legal, uh, firms who are B corps or oriented in that direction who do flat fee, uh, quotes for specific kinds of support that are pretty, um, uh, reproducible for them. And they basically know how much they need to make on them. So that might be something to look around for as well. Um, yeah, so I don't have a lot to add here other than definitely get a prenup. Great idea. And it's going to unfortunately cost a chunk of change and have separate attorneys. That's pretty standard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Next up is Jennifer and you're the expert for this because um, you are an expert in investing and she wants to know if she should move her investments around. She purchased some individual stocks this past year. She's trying to follow the buy and hold strategy, but she just saw one of her stocks plunge dramatically. She lost a lot of money, quite a bit is her, her term. And now she wants to move her money towards index funds and follow the broader market, the S&P 500, because she's anticipating the recession, like everyone knows is pretty much going to happen at this point. She has, a, by the way, has a majority of her money in diversified funds. She's got an emergency fund that's going to last her six months. So she got that base covered. And she says, I know you've always told us to leave our investments alone, but what if I want to trade these investments for better investments? What do you mm. think? What do you think? Is it <laughs> is it too much management? She sh- or, or maybe in this case, because she's going out of like individual stocks, 
Yeah. To broader... I would wonder why is she in individual stocks? Like what was the drive towards that? Um, Cause you hear these sexy things like, Oh, if you had bought, pro- if you bought Amazon <laughs> at its IPO, if you yeah. bought $10,000 worth of Amazon in 1997, you'd yeah. have $12 million now. That's why people yeah. go back to buying individual stocks. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, this is where the industry can be a bit, a bit of snake oil salesman. I mean, it's just, you can slice and dice the data and say, if I could, and then I would have all day long. Um, it, there's no data to support the stock picking works. Uh, most managers. So let's think about fund managers, people who are professionals at this. Most of them, they can beat the major indices in three, four years if they're lucky. After five years, they just fall off a cliff because the statistics just so show that they can't, they can't pick them. Um, so I would go back to what the core desire was in buying these stocks. If it was because it was sexy, then that's what's in, what is interesting and needs to be addressed because you're going to be faced with this quandary again and again and again of trying to be a market timer. Um, so I think the, the, uh, the things I see here are when we are deeply emotionally engaged in our financial decisions, making decision making, we generally make bad decisions. Warren Buffett put it best. I think when he said, I need to be greedy when everyone else is scared and I need to be scared when everyone else is greedy. Um, because, he's pointing out this, uh, difference between what we naturally feel and what is actually the best investor's decision to do. And that's really why index funds are going to end up being your BFF for the rest of your life. They should be Mm -hmm. at least, um, because don't try to time the market. You're not, you're unlikely to get lucky. Um, and what often happens with market timing is that you miss the, the, you, the getting back in is the scariest. You have to time it twice, right? You have to time when to get out and you have to time when to get back in. And most of the returns that you get are on the, um, sudden spikes that keep start moving the market up and you're likely to miss those spikes, which means you can have a significant impact on your overall returns. So if you need to sell these things because they're not a good investment, just sell them and buy the diversified portfolio, um, that is more appropriate for your goals. It's not a sexy answer, but I think it's the pragmatic one. And if you were my client, I would, that's what we would be talking about is coming up with a strategy to get out of those positions, um, in a way that makes sense. Well, that's some invaluable advice. Jennifer, you just got Georgia on the discount right now, (laughs) giving you what she would tell her actual client who pays her a lot more money than nothing uh, for being on this podcast. But yeah, Jennifer, you know, I obviously, I want to be clear. I'm all about index funds as well, long-term buy and hold. But in this case, if you switch your strategy from the sort of like stock picking to transitioning to the index track, which is, we think in the long run, a better strategy, then yeah, that makes sense. It's more the over management of your portfolio that doesn't really make sense. Buying and selling Mm -hmm. and all that uh, busyness doesn't really pay off. All right. Last question is an audio question. Let's uh, turn it to Tanya now, who has a question about paying down credit cards or just the minimum on her cards. Let's see what she has to say. Hi, Farnoosh. I have federally held student loans, and I've just learned that in addition to 0% interest, we may make no payments through September. I have one credit card of $12,000 at 3.9% through April 2021, and then it goes up to 14%. Should I put what would have been my student loan payment toward that credit card while I can and knock it out? 
or should I just pay the minimum on the card? I have a small emergency fund of about 3000 and my job is secure. I'm a teacher. Thank you. All right. I think last time we were on, you were on the show, we may have touched on this student loan deferment, which we know more about now. And that is that okay. if you do have a direct federal student loan like Tanya does, it's in deferment until the end of September, principal plus interest, then the government's going to tack on an additional six months to your term. Um, so that's a nice break for anybody who is out of work, struggling to make ends meet, you can just kind of forget about your student loans for the time being. That said, you can still contribute to your student loans, principal only. And and for some people, that I'm hearing is an attractive move because they want to knock down the debt faster that way. If they do have the capacity to do that, they don't have any other obligations. This is just kind of the only thing outstanding. Um, Go for it, right? But in this case, she says she's got credit card debt. $12,000 balance, roughly temporary interest rate of just 4%. And it's going to expire in 2021, April, and then go up to 14%. So what do we think? Do we think that she should not? I don't know the student loan balance. She didn't mention, but should she try to knock down this credit card debt or just pay the minimum? Mm. She says her emergency fund, this is the thing. Her emergency fund is not very big. It's just $3,000. So my sense is just continue paying yourself until you feel more Mm. secure there and then attack the debt Mm -hmm. more aggressively. Yeah, I would agree with that. I I don't know what the value, you know, what the principal or the interest rate is on her student loan. I'm not a big fan of paying down student loans, um, in part because some folks get a deduction on the interest that they pay. Um, and often the interest rate is quite is reasonable depending on when, when your loan is from. So I am not a big fan of that because I think it's a really good um, way to leverage the most valuable asset you have, which is your human capital. So, um, but I do see that, um, her emergency fund could use some fluffing up. So I would focus on that, get one to two months of expenses in there. And then for a lot of our clients, um, when this does come up, which, you know, in our area is a little bit irregular, but what we'll do is say, open up a separate savings account and you call that your debt pay down account. You don't Mm -hmm. have to commit to putting that money into your debt, but it's there when you're ready to. And that gives her until April of next year to make sure that her job actually is secure and that she has enough money in her emergency fund. And then she can look at that debt pay down account and say, okay, I've got 12 grand in my debt pay down account. I've got seven grand or whatever it is in my emergency fund. I feel totally comfortable making that additional payment to the credit card. Um, at that point, but I would, I would secure more of the foundational buffer that she needs, um, that we all need really to be uh, able to have choices in the, in the way we allocate our money. That's it, right? More money, more choices. And in a time like this, when we feel like so much is not a choice, uh, we're being told to do a lot of things right now and it can feel like we're not in control. And so, yeah, that's that's it. And and, and I think we're going to end on that because that's, that's a great way to start your weekend. Finding <laughs> finding ways to, you know, think about your money through the lens of how can I expand my financial life so that I can have more opportunities for myself and be more in the driver's seat. And Georgia, mm-hmm. thank you so much for always being a beacon of 
hope and guidance and wisdom Mm. for us as we navigate our finances during these really, really weird times. I am so grateful. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to have these conversations and to be able to be a support. Absolutely. And everybody, Georgia has a newsletter. Go to modernistfinancial.com slash newsletter. And of course, Modernist Financial for more on Georgia and her team. And everybody, I hope your weekend is so money. 